Good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. You're not cheating on your wife if you eat my lemon square. Your lemon squares taste like ass. And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking gun survivalists. We're talking pole vaulting. And we're talking long, snaky tongues. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace. And we're talking Val and Earl just fuck already the movie. <laughs> oh my god oh my there's so god. much unresolved sexual tension <laughs> you know and the, it, listeners before you quibble which I, i'm sorry none of you will quibble because you're all on our same wavelength but if you're a bloody disgusting commenter and you're quibbling um <laughs> when you're oh, they will. They will. when you're looking for queer content in this movie it's re- i mean the one of the first shots is kevin bacon pulling a wedgie out of his ass <laughs> <laughs> I mean, wedgies are not exclusively the purview of the queer community, but yes, I see what you mean. Like <laughs> the the butts are front and center, the men are front and center, and who's that? Is that Rhonda somewhere in the distance? I mean, look, there's a whole thing about how Kevin Bacon won't go with anyone unless she like matches exactly what his famous list is, and it's because mm-hmm. he wants a man. He's already got a life partner. <laughs> They bicker like an old couple, too. But everyone, Mm -hmm. uh, welcome to Horror Queers. I don't know why I said that. We are discussing Tremors today. A classic, (laughs) a classic, classic, classic film that is definitely something that I rented nonstop growing up. Mm -hmm. I think I watched this... I don't want to say it was like on home video, but it must have been airing on like a TBS or something, because I feel Mm -hmm. like this was always just kind of playing in the background, because it feels like it's family friendly, even though people die really horribly in this movie. Oh, I mean, look, there there are some things that literally gave me nightmares. I mean, I say as a kid, but even today I'm watching, I'm like, I mean, when you see some of the corpses in this movie, Mm -hmm. it's just kind of like, oh, God, like, yeah. But okay, <laughs> I'm getting too excited about this because I do love this movie. <laughs> Spoiler alert! But um, a hundred percent, yeah. But there is like this film has such a huge fan base and such a, like a nice storied history behind it. So I think we should bring in a guest to help us out. All right, everyone. He is the author of many books, including the Spectral Inspector series and and I love this the upcoming The Pegging Book, a complete guide to anal sex with a strap-on dildo. He is also the co-host of the Pike Cast, a horror podcast dedicated to examining the work of author Christopher Pike. Yes. Please, <laughs> please welcome <laughs> Cooper Beckett. <laughs> hello, hello everybody. Hello Cooper, welcome finally to the show. I'm so excited. i kept messaging joe and asking who i have to bribe or fuck or whatever to get on i mean honestly uh you give me some of those uh uh, strap on dildo tips and i was gonna say who do i gotta peg to get on the show right (laughs) this is probably too much information but i'm a rather novice bottom and i'm trying Mm. to get more into it but, I can you know. make some recommendations. Probably, probably not pertinent to the Tremors episode, no. but I can mm. in in the future if you'd like. We'll bring you back for porno queers. Yeah, How's yeah that? perfect, perfect, perfect. Yeah, let's do that. Um, but anyway, <laughs> so t- Tremors, Cooper. Why do you want to discuss Tremors? Why did you want to discuss Tremors? Uh, tremors is it's it's one of those movies that, like you were saying, it's it was kind of ubiquitous. 
You know, mm-hmm. I remember I didn't see it in the theaters because this was back in 90 and my parents were still very against me seeing horror movies. Mm-hmm. But I'm I'm positive it was one of those I was over at a friend's house or at yeah. a family party and it was just on. And we were sitting down and like, what is this? Mm-hmm. And I vividly remember the monster from the poster being on the local West Coast video wall. Oh, West Coast video. I know, right? <laughs> I don't even know what that is. <laughs> Oh, it's it's old. They're they're, they're long gone. Mm-hmm. But I remember how disappointed I was when that monster didn't show up in the movie. Oh, the one on the poster. Yeah, because it, yeah, it it does not look at all what is represented. No. Which again is going into this movie's poor marketing, which is part of the reason <laughs> why it didn't do that well in the- theatrically. Which I'm always shocked by. Like mm-hmm. you and I both have the Arrow uh, 4K release, which is honestly stunningly gorgeous if you've ever wanted to see this movie pop but they've got a bunch of extra features and one of the first ones is like the making of this movie and you're like cool cool you sit down to watch and they say it's it's really disappointing that this movie flopped and i was like wait this movie flopped <laughs> everyone knows tremors how is that possible it's so funny though because you know, so again because i'll get into this when we go to the production but like you know the home video saved this movie mm-hmm. and on yeah. one of those featurettes on the arrow 4k set there's literally like a clip from a news broadcast that is literally like it's called a video store. People will go and pick up tapes just like this and take yep. them home. And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> it's fantastic. And one of the things that I loved was, you know, because Cooper and I think you and I are around the same age. Maybe you're a little bit younger. But like we would have grown up watching the advent of VHS come oh, yeah, into totally. our lives. But like this video clip, because it's 1990, it's really like still early in those days. Yeah. Like it's it's not everybody had a VCR at home. Yes. Sometimes some people would just go and rent one. Yes, you rent the VCR with the tape. But oh also these are like the <laughs> giant tapes before they kind of yeah. refined VHS. So these things look like a fucking brick. Ah, oh, the memories. <laughs> the old days. Because, you know, we, Joe, you and I have talked about our horror journeys like many times in this podcast, but this is one of those ones where, you know, I wasn't allowed to watch R-rated movies, and so yeah. I would go through the horror section and pick up every single box, check the rating, and if it was not rated R, I would, like, have a stack. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then at the, end of my, at the end of my journey, I would, like, limit it down to, hey, what do I want to watch today? And Critters, of course, was a big one for me, but as was Tremors and its sequel, Tremors 2 Aftershocks, oh, yeah. which, by the way, mm-hmm. is it's really good. Yeah. Really yeah. good. Really like Tremors 2. Yeah, my parents caught on with the PG-13 thing after I watched Killer Clowns from Outer Space <laughs> and did not appreciate in my young age the uh, satire of it. Instead, was just terrified by the clowns. Oh, no. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this was a hoot for me. And I mean, I remember I did find it scary when I was a kid. But I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, this is a horror comedy, first and foremost. And man, people had a lot of trouble. Well, I'm sorry, the studio had a lot of trouble figuring out what to do with that. But, right. you know, mm-hmm. once people finally started watching it, no one cared. This is a, as you said, Joe, a mostly family friendly horror movie. Mm hmm. Okay, so tell us what was the issue with the studio? Were they yes. just like, horror and comedy don't go okay, together? no, no, no. I, I mean, let's start at the beginning, okay? This was the era of arachnophobia, after all. Oh, mm-hmm. God. Also a winner, by the way. Okay, so 
let's the genesis of Tremors, if you will. Um, also, I do love though in Tremors three, there's a whole bit where like because they have like the town set up for like uh, souvenirs and shit, and mm-hmm. some kid walks up to a picture of a, gra- a statue of a graboid and goes, "Mom, get a picture of me with a trimmer." And someone's like, "They're called graboids, not Tremors." <laughs> 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 anyway, um, so screenwriters S. S. Wilson, Steve Wilson, uh, and Brent Maddock. They met director Ron Underwood in college, and they quickly became best buds. And before I go any further, I do want to say that Tremors was Underwood's first feature directorial film, but he would go on to direct such films as City Slickers, mm-hmm. Heart and Souls, which probably no one's heard of, but I definitely- I love Heart and Souls. <laughs> oh my God, Trace, stop assuming things. Just- I, I saw that at a, at a sneak peek double feature with Apollo 13. Well, okay, Joe, I'm sorry. No, I know what this movie is because I did rent it a lot growing up. But it, <laughs> it, the, the same writers of this wrote that and the it's same director. Yeah. So. Um, he also directed Mighty Joe Young and The Adventures Ooh. of Pluto Nash, which, of course, put him Ooh. in director's jail. So he now pretty much only directs TV. Oh, hmm. yeah, yeah. In the early 80s, Wilson and Maddock were working for the U.S. Navy as filmmakers in charge of creating educational safety videos. And while getting footage, the two climbed a large desert boulder and asked the question, what if there was something that wouldn't let us off this rock? Which, of course, inspired them to start brainstorming ideas for a monster movie that they eventually dubbed Land Sharks. (laughs) Coming soon to Sci-Fi Network. Exactly. (laughs) I mean, look, I got a press email yesterday for Ouija Shark 2, so yes. <laughs> Not one. Do you have to see the original to understand the new one? I have questions. I'm really, well, I mean, maybe look. it'll be like the other Ouija sequel and just be vastly mm. superior in every way. Oh my god, one can hope, right? Yeah. One can hope. I wouldn't put your money on it, though. <laughs> <laughs> so they shared this idea with Underwood, who was working with National Geographic as a documentary director, and he used his knowledge of zoology to better develop the quote-unquote land sharks into creatures that, that, that could realistically exist, but they put this idea in a file folder and didn't think of it again for a while. Hmm. All right. While all of this was going on, Wilson and Maddock had co-written a screenplay with Underwood's involvement called Short Circuit. Never heard of it. Is that <laughs> like actually, heart to heart? <laughs> I've actually never seen Short Circuit. I know what oh, it is. Really? It's fun. It's very I fun. I know. I just alley sheeting in a robot. And I'm like, ugh, like, bleh. <laughs> Well, well don't so forget cute. a horrific uh, brown face Indian performance. Yeah, I was going to say, apart from the, you know, racism, because, of course, it's yeah. the 80s. <laughs> oh, my God. Poltergeist 2, I see you. <laughs> mm-hmm. So they brought the script for Short Circuit to Agent Nancy Roberts. And Nancy Roberts, keep this name in your head. I'm going to come back to her a lot in this production. They sold it for half a million dollars and basically shot to fame. However, they all agreed that there could not be three names on this film because it was just too much. So Underwood graciously backed out, removed his name from the script since he had the least involvement. But this came with the caveat that Maddock and Wilson would use their cloud earned from Short Circuit to launch Ron's career with a second film. Wow. Mm-hmm. Things that you will never hear in Hollywood ever again. No. Exactly. No, I mean, here's the thing. The camaraderie on this is wonderful. So, okay. Nancy Roberts, she got short, short Circuit, but she never took in clients without a second script. So after Short Circuit, she asked them for another one. They went back and they dug out that piece of paper with the Land Sharks idea on it. 
Roberts gave them a bunch of pitch meetings to get someone to pay them to write the script, but every single person they brought this to did not get it. Uh, it wasn't action, it wasn't horror, it wasn't comedy, it wasn't Jaws. No one Ugh. knew what to make of this, so no one said, cool, I'll pay you money to write this script. <laughs> hmm. She told them they would have to spec the script. And of course, everyone, if you don't know what spec script means, it just means they are writing the script, hoping someone will buy it, as opposed to getting paid to write the script. Yeah. After six months of working on this script, they still would not let Nancy Roberts see it. So at that point, she's like, <laughs> look, y'all, I'm sending the script police to your house, which I think it just means one of her interns. I don't know. Oh, sure. <laughs> You're going to have to hand over whatever version of the script you have. And it was they, they were on the eighth draft of the script, by the way. Wow. So they get it. When she reads it, she liked it, but she said something was off. And again, we're talking about tonal issues here. Was it comedy? Was it horror? The balance was 50-50. And she said that you need to tip it in one direction to make this work. While they went to tinker with the scripts, okay, they're off doing that. She's setting up a campaign for how the movie could get made and who could be real partners with Maddock and Wilson while also letting Underwood direct, again, his first directing film, since they had all agreed to that after Short Circuit. Also, the amount that she's putting into this movie, like the belief that she has mm -hmm. in their capacity to deliver is yeah. so admirable. Well, again, a, a killer worm movie. Like... <laughs> <laughs> It's I don't. Bizarre. Yeah, I'm just shocked. I feel like again, if you put, if you pitch this today, none of this would be happening. Or they'd be like, "Why don't you go make it in your basement on like a computer for ten dollars, and, and then, then air it on Sci-Fi, and it's land sharks." <laughs> <laughs> we do actually like Sci-Fi. It's just they also produce a bunch of low-budget looking stuff. Yeah, you know, we can say the Asylum. The Asylum. There we go. Yeah. Anyway. Mm. Yeah. So this is all happening. She's brainstorming and she begins kind of working Jim Jacks. I'm putting working in quotes, but I don't mean in a sexual way. I just mean she's like, you know, hey, like she's uh, networking. Mm -hmm. And Jim Jacks is a producer over at Universal Pictures because she thought he'd be the right guy. Um, for reference, this man would go on to produce the first films of Richard Linklater and Kevin Smith. So like this was kind of his bread and butter, butter was finding, you know, new filmmakers and getting them famous, basically. Nice. Okay. So she's chatting with him over several weeks or maybe even months while, you know, they're working on their script. And I guess when you're doing this, like, you can send the script directly to the studio and then they start working with production companies. But she didn't want to do that. She wanted to go straight to the production company itself. Because apparently going to the studio system makes a hard process harder. <laughs> mm. So... She was looking at three different production companies that she thought would get the movie, but she narrowed her search down to Gale Ann Hurd's company, Pacific Western Productions. Now, sidebar, because a little bit on Gale Ann Hurd, because we're getting a really cool female partnership here. Mm -hmm. In 77, Hurd graduated from Stanford University with a BA in economics and communications and a minor in political science. And I only bring this up because... That's random because the first job she got was a gig at New World Pictures as an executive assistant to Roger Corman, the company president. Putting <laughs> hmm. that to work. So economics and communications and political science. Cool. Go work for Roger Corman. She worked her way up through various administrative positions and eventually became involved in production. So in 1982, she formed her own production company, the aforementioned Pacific Western, and went on to produce a number of box office hits, including the James Cameron films The Terminator, Aliens, and The Abyss. Um, her sole screenwriting credit is actually on The Terminator, by the way. So she mm. kind of sounds like the Deborah Hill to his John Carpenter. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, she was also married to Cameron from 85 to 89. And then after that, she was married to Brian De Palma from 91 to 93. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so... I just find that fascinating. Um, anyway, while working at New World Pictures under Corman, she met Ellen Collette, who, after working at Warner Brothers for a bit, would go on to work under Heard at Pacific Western. And the reason I bring up Collette is because she wanted to work for Heard because Heard wanted to make another production company outside of Pacific Western called No Frills Films, which the whole basis of this company was going to be that it had two stipulations. It would always make films under a certain price point and always with a first-time writer-director, and Colette was stoked for that. Hmm. Back to Nancy Roberts. She knew all about this, and she knew that No Frills would be the perfect company for Tremors, so she weasels her way in to connect with Colette, who in turn connected her with Herd. <laughs> nice. I mean, savvy business making, and also women in a male-dominated industry. Yeah. Absolutely. So she gets them to read the script, and Herd liked it, so she meets with Underwood. Uh, things are on track, but Herd and Roberts made a deal where they would only go to three studios, because again, we don't have a studio yet. And if all three studios passed on the film, they would take a step back and reconsider their options. Roberts only had an interest in Universal since she'd already been cultivating her relationship with Jim Jacks over there. But Heard's relationship with 20th Century Fox, who was the umbrella for Pacific Western, they had to be the first offer. So they went to Fox right. first. Fox passed. Yeah. <laughs> As we know. <laughs> then they went to Disney. And Disney passed. <laughs> Which is funny because Cooper, you mentioned arachnophobia, yeah. and yeah, Disney was really pushing the uh, Touchstone uh, mm -hmm. label back then. Well, but that's the thing, right? Because uh, uh, Roberts is saying in this whole thing, she's like, I, "I knew the person working at Disney. I knew he wasn't going to get it." So when you say arachnophobia, which is a horror comedy that leans mm -hmm. heavier into the comedy, and they they greenlit that shit. I mean, sorry, great shit, but still. <laughs> so then they finally go to Universal. And Jim Jacks championed the film, and they agreed. But of course, you know, Roberts is like, well, shit. Like, but going through those first two no's was a nail-biting experience, because if Jim didn't take it, we were fucked. Mm -hmm. <sighs> well, all this is going on. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have a script? Anywhere? Anywhere. <laughs> so Roberts told Maddock and Wilson, she was like, hey, y'all should be producers on this film, since you're also filmmakers, and if you have a producer title, it will allow you to have a say in how the film turns out and maintain your vision. Which, again, is kind of rare. You don't often yeah. have, because a lot of times, you know, directors don't want the writers on set because the director has their own vision. Not so here. I mean, I'm sure Underwood had a vision, but he was more collaborative with Maddock and Wilson on this. Right. So the deal worked out. Universal signs on. Shit got underway with a $10 million budget. Um, they did eventually have to beg for another million dollars, which they got. So we're looking at an $11 million budget, which even for these Corman people, so for Heard and for Colette, this was still this was a huge budget for them despite being mm -hmm. a small budget overall right right not a ton of casting information here but kevin bacon was running out of money and that is why he came <laughs> on board mm -hmm. <sighs> after footloose he had done a string of films that all bombed uh he actually didn't even want to do this movie because he thought doing a movie about a bunch of giant groundworms meant his career was over but he was in a depression, his wife Kira Sedgwick was pregnant and due it any day, and because he needed money, he signed on for this thing. Yeah, I love the anecdotes of, like, when they were filming, how apparently they were all kind of secretly hoping that her pregnancy went 
exactly to term because filming was due to end when she was due and he was like oh god what happens if we lose kevin bacon because he has to go and like help his wife deliver their kid (laughs) so the day she went into labor she like calls uh i want to say it's roberts on set and she's like Mm -hmm. hey how many more sets do you have kevin for and they're like three why and she goes oh i'm just going into labor (laughs) (laughs) if you could send him over when he's done thanks also i feel like we always forget about kevin bacon and kira sedgwick as like the hollywood power couple because Mm -hmm. they really have been together forever them and Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell, baby. Mm-hmm. Like Hollywood royalty. Love them all. Love it. So filming begins in early 1989 and lasted for over 50 days. Uh, principal Ooh. photography takes place around Lone Pine, California and the isolated community of Darwin, California. But the town of perfection was entirely a set, which I did not know. I could see it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, despite the fact that Underwood storyboarded every single scene, they were behind schedule on the first day because it snowed in the desert. <laughs> oh, dear God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but then they had 105, 110 degree days. They were at the mercy of the weather. Uh, for example, a dust devil hit Chang's market and knocked it <laughs> 25 feet away from its mark. Oops. <laughs> um, there were snakes. Uh, one time Ariana Richards was going to get food at craft services and there was a rattlesnake under it that a snake wrangler had to come and just throw off into the desert. <laughs> well, that gave her uh, preparation for when the T-Rex came. So that there we go. Yeah. yeah. And I will say that even though she has quit acting, she does return for the yeah. third movie, which I, look, I don't think it's perfection. a perfection. I don't think it's a good movie, but I think it's a very fun movie. <laughs> uh, sometimes that's what you need, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you, could, you can't hate a movie with monsters that they call ass blasters. Yeah. <laughs> when, and Michael Gross just just takes it to a whole new level in in those movies yeah i mean it's so weird to me that people unequivocally associate tremors like this first film with kevin bacon and really it's gross who picks up the baton Mm -hmm. and then carries the rest of the fucking franchise well that's why i knew when that that tremors tv series starring kevin bacon without michael gross was being Mm. filmed it's like this is wrong this doesn't make sense it feels like you need both of them if you were going to try to restart it but there was a one-season wonder sci-fi TV series mm-hmm. of this that I actually did watch when it aired um, with Michael Gross in the lead. But yeah, it was they canceled it for one season. It was like 2003, I think. Way back, yeah. Yeah. And were the, were the special effects asylum-level quality? <laughs> I mean, again, I was 14 when I was watching this, and I have not seen it since, so I could not tell you. But I also haven't seen Tremors 2 in a very long time. And right. watching clips of that, the CGI is not the best look. Yeah, the the Tremors 2 CGI is really upsetting. Well, but here's the thing, though. Without that CGI, that movie wouldn't have gotten made because it was going to be a $14 million budget. And with the CGI, they dropped it to $4 million. Yeah. Whoa. Okay. I mean, when you see the nature of the practical effects that they put into use for this film, it's kind of not surprising. But also... The practical effects in this movie are so good looking. Like, in 4K, they still hold up. So the thing is, because this movie wasn't a slam dunk theatrically, apparently when it started doing all on home video, Universal was like, cool, let's either do a sequel or a remake. And Which, mm. I thought a remake was really weird, but... Yeah. <laughs> the rule of thumb, apparently, at the time, I don't know if it's the way now, but is that if you're doing a sequel, it's going to have two-thirds of the budget of the first movie. Yeah. So when they were like, oh, cool, we're going to you know, have like walking. <laughs> uh, uh, what do they call them in the second one? Um, 
Fuck, I don't I even know, know what they're the called. The ass blasters. There, uh, yeah, I know. I know the ass blasters. I don't remember. <laughs> well, I always call them uh, chicken graboids because they look like little chickens. Yeah. There you go. We'll call them chicken graboids. They're very cute. <laughs> they're very they cute. Um, but uh, yeah, they were just like I, that. That was going to balloon the budget to fourteen million, which is more yeah. than this movie. And they were like, "Yeah, we can't do that." Yeah. <laughs> but that being said, I know I'm knocking on the CGI of Tremors too. It's 1996, direct-to-video yeah. CGI, and it looks better than what that description makes it sound like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it looks better than Asylum, um, current Asylum yeah. product. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but post-production on this film was also an issue. So composer Ernest Truce's musical score for the film went mostly unused. The studio thought it was too goofy and cut most of it, later hiring composer Robert Folk to write new score that was more serious and action-y, but... Folk was uncredited. True still gets full composer credit on this film. Hmm. Wait, they, they considered the current score very action-y? I know. I was like, <sighs> I find it super comical. That is so goofy with the, the, the twangy uh, guitar. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a steel guitar and harmonica score. That stuff. That is true score. The, uh, oh, it, it is? Okay. Yes. So, but but it's okay. whenever the, the whenever there's an action scene, like whenever like the Graboids are out, that's when ah. it's the other score. Because, and if you get this Arrow 4K set, and y'all, we're not being sponsored. Like, we just have it. Like, it's a really good set. <laughs> but, um, you, you can watch some of the cl- uh, the clips with the original score, and it does oh. really give it a different vibe. Like, it's a bit too... I imagine. It doesn't have a playfulness to it. So, well, it is funny how wall-to-wall the score feels, especially mm-hmm. in the first half of the film. Oh, yeah. Well, it's funny, too, because the, the piece of score that I always remember, because this is one of the first movies where I remember watching as a kid where I was like, okay, if the music isn't scary, I, I, I don't have to be scared. And so... Right. <laughs> When they're on the the rocks pole vaulting, the music switches to very happy, mm-hmm. cheery mm-hmm. music. Yeah. And I remember being like, oh, good. Um, the, no one's going to be in danger right now because yeah. of this music. Well, this is the scene where originally, apparently, when they were pole vaulting, they had shots of the worms trying to grab at them. And the music was scarier. Hmm. but they didn't want okay. that and they changed it and so watching that i was like oh that's so funny because that's one of like the music cues that i like distinctly remember from this movie watching it as a kid mm-hmm. yeah because that's a, a huge moment of levity because before that you're really uncertain whether one of them will die yeah mm-hmm. it's sort of like the happy john williams score after they they hit the barrels into jaws yes right. yes yes because <laughs> that was my other example <laughs> there we go um okay so tremors was set for a november 1989 release however the mpaa gave the film an r rating because of the language and the creators decided at the last minute to make the film more commercially available so over 20 uses of the word fuck were either (laughs) cut or redubbed with softer words so can you fly you sucker instead of fucker or we killed that mother humper instead of motherfucker among mother humper oh man does that just stand out like a sore thumb in this movie though well i'm glad you mentioned this because i did wonder as i was watching it you know i i didn't have any moments really stand out as being well that's obviously dubbed Mm -hmm. but i did have moments that stood out as being well, we're trying to get a PG-13. So I didn't right. really know it was done in post-production, mm-hmm. but I definitely could tell that the profanity was supposed to be a little harder at mm-hmm. some point. Well, and it's so funny, too, because there is a 16-minute featurette on this 4K where they will show you a scene from the theatrical cut, rewind it, and then show you the TV edit of it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, a TV edit, too. Even worse. And <sighs> it is 
very delightful. So yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> there is no cut of this movie where you can get motherfucker in it at all because it just it mm. never it was never released that way. But right, there is a much tamer TV edit, <laughs> including a uh, bleeping out Jesus Christ for like oh. like uh, something else. <laughs> Yeah, they used to do that back in the uh, early 90s. So weird. Um, so yeah, the film was pushed back from its November 89 release date, and it opened on January 19th, 1990, in almost 1,500 theaters. By itself, this movie had no competition its opening weekend from other new releases, and it debuted at the number five spot. Oh, no. <laughs> Ouch. It is behind Born on the Fourth of July, Tango and Cash, The War of the Roses, and Internal mm. Affairs, all of whom were anywhere in their second to seventh week of release. Uh, but I mean, we also recognize three of those four titles. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, very, very true. But it only wound up grossing $3.7 million that weekend. Oh, God. Its final domestic haul was $16.7 million, which did make it financially right. successful. So it wasn't a flop. Yeah. But it was a fifth of what Universal had projected it was going to make. So they anticipated, like, you know, $60, $60 million in this movie. Wow, that was, that's a bold excitement uh, for <laughs> Universal Pictures in 1990. Mm-hmm. According to what? Tracking Universal? <laughs> I, that, but, and that's the thing. Even Kevin Bacon said that because he was like, yeah, Universal, like, it wasn't like box office analysts. It was the people at Universal said this movie was going to be a big hit for us and make $60 million. <laughs> wow. Okay, so what went wrong? Literally, the only excuse people have is the marketing. They didn't know how to market it. If focus on the comedy, focus on not. They actually, because the original plan for the film was to not reveal that it was going to be monsters in the trailers. But then when Universal said, no, we want to market it as a monster movie, like they added extra scenes of like, um, whenever Rhonda's walking to her car, you kind of have like the camera POV following her. That was added in post. Mm -hmm. So... I don't know. But basically, opening weekend, Universal goes to the producers and goes, well, we blew it. Like, literally said that over the phone. (laughs) (laughs) So, box office performance aside, Tremors was hailed by critics. Uh, We're looking at an 87% on Rotten Tomatoes with an average score of 7.1 out of 10. And over on Letterboxd, we're looking at a 7 out of 10. Yeah, because this movie's fucking great. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, you know, because I, I, Joe, you and I did rewatch this last year, to, like, just as a fun, like, rewatch for the two of us, but mm-hmm. I hadn't seen it in at least a decade before then, just because I did watch it so much as a kid that I was like, I don't need to rewatch Tremors anytime soon. And, <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, this movie, it, it holds up in every possible way for me. Yeah, it's still really funny, and the scares are still really good, and as we said off the top, some of these deaths are genuinely upsetting. The amount of visceral uh, gunk Mm -hmm. in the bloody, like, Mm -hmm. hats that are left everywhere, or the head in the hole, it's it's really, uh, yeah, it goes for it in a way you don't expect from a PG-13. Farmer Fred's head, and also just the screams of pain from the doctor as it gets pulled into ground. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Ooh, ooh. There's nothing worse than saying, someone just yelling, like, get me out, get me out, get me out. (laughs) Um, And, you know, talking about seeing things as as a young person, I vividly remember the moment where Victor Wong's nose is bleeding after mm -hmm. he gets attacked in the um, store. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that scene is edited heavily for TV. Like, there's like, a bunch of shots of like the worms coming out of the mouth, and you know the the graboids swinging him around halfway in his mouth that are not yeah. <laughs> seen on TV. Wow. 
But yeah, and as we've already said, you know, at the time, the video rental business was really exploding. Um, so Tremors was rented and re-rented and re-rented over and over and over, playing to a really broad audience, multiple ages, multiple tastes. It got a new lease on life, becoming one of the most rented films of 1990, wow. earning a large cult following and tripling its box office take. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, but still not five times universal. <laughs> Back in those days, like, I mean, in the early 90s, I remember that's when we really started to see a shift. Like, movies could absolutely come out theatrically, bomb very badly, like this movie, and then you would see them on video rental shelves forever. Yeah. And my ex, when he was working at Blockbuster, like, they would actually show you things like price points, like projected rental profits. Like, this was the studio saying, like, hey, you should buy 12 copies of our movie because it's going to make you this much money. And it was a really fascinating, like, I mean, I, maybe this is where she put her <laughs> economics degree to to work when she was there with uh, Roger Corman. But there is a very, like, business strategy orientation towards ancillary markets like direct-to-video, home box office, and so on. Oh, 100%. I mean, th that's what happened with these sequels, you know? I mean, so, you know, after Tremors 2, which Tremors 2 also got pretty good reviews, with some critics even calling it, like, the best direct-to-video film that has ever been released. Hmm. That's bold. Yeah. <laughs> it, um, it, the, the, the direct-to-video division was making a huge profit. So, you know, and also, one of the screenwriters, Wilson, directed two, with the other one, Matic, directing three. Hmm. After four, they didn't really feel like they had the budgets to keep making more and, like, using their talents. So they moved on, which is why there was an 11-year gap between Tremors 4 and Tremors 5. And then, you know. And then they were like, oh, there's money literally sitting on the shelf. We should make another sequel. <laughs> well, yeah. and, I mean, spoiler, I haven't seen anything past four, um, which are the newer ones. But um, I did hear the last one, Shrieker Island, was a hoot and is a send-off for Michael Gross. They are oh, okay. fun. That's really all they are. And right. they're fun in that goofy way that, like, Sharknado is, but mm. not as insipid as Sharknado is. Right. You know, okay. They, like, you genuinely like Bert. Right. As a character. So, you you already have a leg up on Tara Reid. In <laughs> oh. <laughs> I only know Michael Gross from these movies. I never watched Family Ties as a oh, kid. No. I, I've never seen a single episode. So... I didn't realize that, yeah, him playing this gun-toting survivalist yeah. was very mm -hmm. against type for this man. Oh, yeah. From hippie dad, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and he's great. And, you know, he's he's watching him in interviews. It's just, it's nice, which it's good for him because Kevin Bacon disowned this movie up until, yeah. like, uh, the early 2000s, maybe? When he realized how much everybody loved it and him, so... Yeah, I will yeah. say watching some of these extras where they talk about the passion that fans have for this film and like they get rushed when they do like conventions and that mm. kind of stuff. Like people say, oh, I love you in insert serious movie here, but really my heart belongs to Tremors. <laughs> and you're just like, oh, this yeah. cute little creature feature from 1990 that absolutely tanked has like actually had this massive longevity to it because the fans love this property so much and that's i don't know i find something really heartwarming about that and when you think about the creature feature aspect of it so 90 mm. is let's remember 32 years ago mm -hmm. 
And when those creature features were coming out in the the late fifties, right, that hit right in the late eighties. Mm-hmm. So Tremors has a longevity that many of those creature features never had. Right. You know, they all petered out after you know the sixties. Or a remake. I'm also right. a little surprised, too, though, because maybe this is just because I'm thinking of modern audiences, but there's never an explanation for these creatures. We never go back no. into their history. No. And I appreciate that because I don't want that. No. <laughs> but I, I, I feel like audiences today would be like more uh, uh, persnickety about that. I'd be like, <laughs> no, I want my backstory. I want to know how they got there. <laughs> well, I do have a problem with Rhonda saying that they must predate the fossil record because there are no fossils. <laughs> because there are other reasons there would be no fossils also, but no, right. predating the fossil record. You're well, right. I will tell you that this Arrow 4K set also comes with a diagram of the anatomy <laughs> of a graboid. Ooh. <laughs> and I don't think there's bones in it. No. <laughs> yeah, that's what I figured. It's got to be a cartilage creature or something. Well, also, Rhonda, if if they predate that long, I think we'd be hearing about attacks throughout history and the fact that everyone seems very surprised by this. It's like now they could do a prey type movie where mm. the uh, the graboids are attacking. Uh, I don't know, uh, ancient Rome or something. Sure, that'd but, be great. Oh yeah, confirm no bone, and the anus is at the very tip of the tail. Of course, <laughs> I got the ass end. <laughs> but yeah so that that is how tremors came to be and how it became uh well well everything it is today yeah wow so joe take us away okay so i'm i'm going to introduce a reference that i'm only going to start off at the top because tracy and i already kind of joke like your queer reading is sort of front and center i think (laughs) we're going to get a lot of pushback from people who don't want to see it but the reality is is that it's pretty easy to see val and earl as something of a kind of like bickering old married couple Mm -hmm. and i should note that we're not the only people so eric tatulo from upcoming horror movies has also suggested this saying it's not a great stretch to suggest that val and earl represent a gay couple that are trying to escape their gay lifestyle into more heteronormal lives not involving sleeping bags and pickups actually can i can i jump in there on that specifically Mm -hmm. because before i watched it today i had no idea where we were going to get the queer subtext (laughs) okay okay I, I think you can't just watch this and be like, they're best buds. There's nothing yeah. there. As a as a, a bi guy, I do have, you know, a little less looking for the queer thing, I mm-hmm. think. Mm-hmm. But uh, when I got to the end, I re- realized that there is absolutely no reason for Valentine and Rhonda to kiss at the end. No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it has nothing to do with the plot it could have just been a buddy movie well yes i suppose that okay outside of the wedgie that i mentioned in the opening scene (laughs) the opening scene are these two quote-unquote straight men arguing Mm -hmm. about who has to make breakfast yeah yes and presumably sleeping together in the flatbed of a truck yes the Mm -hmm. domesticity here is off the charts yes So I'm going to bring in Nicola Vaughn. Uh, she is a, well, I, I imagine based on the quality of this PhD thesis that I found, she's probably <laughs> a doctor now, but she wrote her PhD on buddy movies and bromances. So her, her PhD thesis is called From Buddy Movie to Bromance. And 
We've talked about this a couple times before, Trace, but I wanted to bring it back because I'm not sure I've ever defined the term homosociality. Okay. And uh, this is a term that was coined by Jean Lippmann Blumenin in 1976. And it's basically uh, defined as the enjoyment and or preference for same-sex companionship, distinguishing itself from the term homosexual and predominantly used in non-sexual interactive relationships between members of the same sex. So basically, it's just the idea that you prefer spending time with members of the same sex, but it's not a sexual thing. And this is obviously a politically charged thing. It wasn't back in 1976 because it was... It was almost used in a sociocultural sense to say, like, why do men enjoy spending time together and doing things at the exclusion of women and vice versa? And is this healthy for society? Because back in probably like the 80s and before, what we saw were women were really able to have good, intimate, longstanding friendships. And men were always kind of like, well, we don't do that. Like the relationships are shallow. So um, this obviously gets captured in film quite a lot. And at the point when Tremors comes out in 1990, we basically had a very strong decade of what we would now call bromance. At the time, they were just calling them like buddy movies. So you get (laughs) buddy cop movies like Lethal Weapon or Turner and... No, not Turner and Hooch. Um, (laughs) That's bestiality. Well, I mean, it is buddy. It's just a very different kind. (laughs) Sorry, I was thinking of Tango and Cash. Oh, which was playing the same time this movie did. (laughs) Yes, yeah. Um, But the idea is like these sort of movies allow this buddy fantasy where the male viewer can indulge in the adventure, the frat house style joking and the marginalization of women with the absence of anyone saying, oh, well, they must be gay. Because, of course, back in the 80s and before, it was less socially acceptable to be gay. And the reason that we get things like bromance or like buddy comedies nowadays is actually because of the proliferation of queer media. So it's actually become more acceptable to be seen as queer. So you can now make more jokes about like, these two men seem to be spending a lot of time together, but they're not gay. Isn't that the twist kind of deal? And, you know, we're we're talking about Val and Earl here, but let's not forget the fact that I do think that Rhonda is coded as a lesbian because when we meet her... Mm. She is, you know, not the, the, the visage that Val is wanting, but she's wearing khakis. And if there's one thing Amy Schumer has taught me, it's that when you put a woman in khakis, it means that she is a, not a sexual object because there can't possibly be a pussy under those khakis. <laughs> oh, my God. And she's also got zinc on her nose, so, you know, there's that. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because I read her now as like, oh, she's a nerd. That's why. She's a graduate (laughs) student who's out there looking to do good work. She's not out there looking for a fucking man, which is what, of course, Val is only really interested in. But yeah, like, you can also very easily read her as coded lesbian. I also love her. I wish Finn Carter did more things, but this is really her one claim to fame. And I I don't know, but just maybe got tired of the industry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this movie also didn't do well, so maybe it didn't open doors for her in the way that it did for some of the other male co-stars who ended up benefiting from that cult status. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, all this to say, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, the reason I bring up homosociality is because I think for some people, if you look at the movie and you don't see it as like a queer subtext or even a queer text, depending on how obvious you think it is, 
you know, there is that homosociality angle. And it's interesting because we've almost flipped on it where I think it used to be considered a bit of a bad thing, like men didn't feel comfortable expressing intimacy with other men because they were afraid of being called gay. Mm. And as a result, I think men have grown into accepting like, oh, I like having friendships with men because there's a different kind of relationship or a bond there. And now men can have that and not be as afraid of being called gay because shocker, being gay is not a bad thing. All this to say, we can now get into the movie. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I will appreciate the fact that there is no whatever the 90s version of no homo jokes in this movie. Like, yeah, there really. is mm-hmm. not, nothing like that in this film, which I really appreciate, especially given the fact that it is a town that is populated by 14 people. Right. <laughs> yes. And like, we have what are pretty easy to read, like arch conservatives in Michael Gross and Reba McIntyre. Yeah, but conservatism was different in those days. Uh, this is yeah. true. See, uh, I mean, I would say conservative if only in their viewpoints on guns. I actually don't know if I would even consider Burt and Heather like socially like like anti-queer, you know, there's nothing in this movie that would give me that impression of them. I feel like they're more libertarian. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. They don't want the government telling them what to do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, that's why they're Very there, much. right? Like they built a compound where they won't be policed and they can just yeah. do their thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the movie opens up with... Val and Earl, who, of course, are played by Kevin Bacon and Fred Ward. And yeah, like it's it's a lot of relationship building in these early scenes. So, mm-hmm. you know, they wake up, they're in the middle of the desert. They're clearly defined as almost like nomadic handymen where they don't have a solid, consistent job. They're kind of like living out in the desert fairly frequently, even though they do share a trailer. And you know, we're getting a sense of their relationship where it's pretty clear that Earl feels like he has a responsibility to Val and Val is a bit of a dreamer. Like he he won't settle down with any one woman, but he does want to get the fuck out of this small town. And it's kind of like, all right, so this is where we're at. We're kind of man children who are stuck in stasis. <laughs> yeah, but they have that. They have like a 15 year age gap between them. So it's very much like yeah. a. Like almost like a mentor relationship or daddy son, if you forgive me. <laughs> Depends on which reading you want to pursue. Yeah. <laughs> now, I did want to note that Kevin Bacon's uh, Valentine's ideal woman with the blonde hair. Oh, mm-hmm. that woman in those pictures is is definitely in a wig, right? <laughs> like that is a blonde Halloween store wig. That's not even a good wig or a bad dye job. Yeah. I will say, I mean, look, do y'all read this as mean-spirited? Because he gives this list of what his woman has to be. Again, Mm -hmm. an impossible visage of a woman because, again, (laughs) he likes cock. But do you view this as a little mean-spirited to Rhonda when we pull up and his face is just like, oh. Absolutely (laughs) Absolutely false. Because Rhonda is perfectly lovely. Yes. Mm -hmm. Ugh. She's just not blonde. I mean, and she has zinc on her nose and wears uh, khakis. Right. But in in some ways, you can also view this film as it's like an action version of a romantic comedy, right? Where Mm. these two meet, and it's not that they're at each other's throat like a screwball comedy, but at the same time, it's very clearly, oh, we shouldn't fall for each other because we're nothing like what we actually want. You know, Rhonda doesn't actually want a partner, and Val only wants, yeah, basically a playboy centerfold. And of course, we know the minute that they meet that they're going to end up hooking up or fucking. 
Yeah, except there's not really any work. So there's not a ton of work done throughout the film to develop their romantic relationship. No, mm-hmm. no. I think it does actually work because, again, this movie does really well with its relationship building. There is a deleted scene. There's like three on this set. One okay. is an extra scene with um the guy who dies in the tower that we never meet before he dies. Oh, oh right. Okay. Yep. And Farmer Fred. Like, both of them have a scene together before they both die. Oh, but okay. Another one is when Rhonda first makes it to Chang's market and basically Fred Ward is telling her, hey, like, you know, I know Val's kind of like blah, 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 but, you know, he he shows a lot of promise. Like, he he's really like, he, he's good. Mm-hmm. Basically saying, offering him up on a platter to Rhonda. <laughs> <laughs> he could be a prospective life partner for you, even yeah. though he is already clearly mine. Yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly, like, that's why they cut it, clearly. <laughs> right, that must be it. Hmm. I mean, the the one thing that I really appreciate about this, and it does feel a bit more of this era, like we weren't afraid of actually having smart, strong, capable women without mm-hmm. needing to label them and give them like a fuck yeah Avengers endgame kind of moment. Mm-hmm. So like Rhonda is just consistently really smart throughout this yes. movie. Like she gets into danger a couple of times, but it's often not even her own fault. Like when she gets knocked out the window in Chang's, that's not her fault. That's because the graboid upends all the shelves. And she saves herself. She saves herself and then she saves Val. Like he he saves her from the barbed wire, but then she saves him with the water tower when he's stuck out trying to get the tractor or whatever. Like I when like that she, she can contribute stuff over yeah. and over again. Yeah. I mean honestly the only the only knock I have against this movie in that regard is when they have to take her pants off. Because I'm like, no, you take oh my your God. shoes off yeah. and it's fine. <laughs> that that scene is ridiculous. It, that to me was the most nineteen ninety moment of all. It was like some leering studio executive being like, but can't we see her without her pants on? <laughs> I mean, at least they did give her another set of pants and shoes. Right. Very oh, yeah. quickly. Very she's, quickly. She's yeah. barely in, in her panties like, for a long time and Underwood never sexualizes her. Yeah. 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 So, yay, Rhonda. We like you as a character. Oh, she's yeah. great. I mean, I, I do genuinely love Rhonda. She's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Like, I would have loved to see her come back in the sequels and, right? and work with Bert. Yeah. 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 We didn't do that. We don't We do not do that with female character. No. <laughs> well, except for Mindy. Well, yeah. Yeah. Mindy comes back. Yeah. And in the third one, um, the... Charlotte it's, uh, Stewart comes back, too. Yes, but it's also uh, 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 Chang's granddaughter is the owner yeah. of, the, of the market, so she's the female uh, lead in the okay. film. But also, I'm kind of like, well, but the the actress who plays Mindy had a little movie about dinosaurs in between <laughs> coming back with our third sequel, so. But, but you know what, though? No, because she says people will be like, yeah, I love you in Jurassic Park, but I really love you in Tremors, too, just like we were saying earlier, Joe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I do like that, yeah. And don't forget A Far Off Place. I mean, really, don't forget that. Is that a movie? That's Walkabout <laughs> for Kids. <laughs> oh, God, really? Okay. Mm. Yeah. That's uh, serious. Played, That's not she's, funny. She's uh, lost in the uh, outback. Right. Nice. Okay. So yeah, a lot of these these early scenes are very much about establishing the relationship. So we do Val and Earl, and then we meet Rhonda, and then we're driving around. We're introduced to the residents of Perfection, Population 14. We go to Walter Chang. He has a, a store. He's played by Victor Wong. We meet bratty teen prankster Melvin, who is played by Bobby Jacoby. And yes, we also meet Bert and Heather Gummer, who, yeah, are are gun nuts. We'll, we'll leave it at that. 
Yeah. <laughs> They're lovable, though. Also, Reba yeah, McIntyre's first film role. And she was great. She's yeah. so good in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's really funny because I definitely knew her as a country music singer. Mm. Like, I, I wasn't big into country music because no. I was a kid and that just wasn't my deal. But seeing her in this movie, I thought that it was a different Reba McIntyre until <laughs> the closing credits when you're like, yeah. oh, and now she's singing a song. Okay. <laughs> I will tell y'all, though, right now, I watched every fucking season of her TV show, Reba, which to this day is still one of my absolute favorite sitcoms. Wow. It's so funny. It's so... Barbara Jane. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, her accent is just so good to the point where when you hear Kevin Bacon trying to do a kind of Southern (laughs) affectation, you're like, oh, no, you need to spend more time with Reba. She'll set you straight. Fred Ward gets it fine. Right. Yeah. Okay, so we're we're learning all of these town people and, and establishing, yeah, they're basically in the middle of fucking nowhere, surrounded by mountains in the desert. And then we cut back to Rhonda and we get this POV of something moving towards her very quickly underground and it just misses her as she like drives off in her truck. So yeah, this is a post-production edition because again, we were not going to know that there was an actual like monster until much, well, not much later, but just later in the film, into the first mm-hmm. act. That's always one of those ideas that are good in theory. Right. Like, wouldn't it be great if you'd seen From Dusk Till Dawn and didn't know about the vampires? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but would you have seen From Dusk Till Dawn right. if you didn't know about the vampires? It's good for a first watch. But after that, yeah. it's like, okay, cool. The surprise doesn't matter anymore, you know? Yeah. Well, or even, why are you trying to trick your audience and then giving them something really late in the movie? Like, why not just give it to them and let them enjoy it? Mm-hmm. I think when the idea when they were writing it is, they were like, no, it's going to, people are going to think it's a serial killer in this town. Oh. Because there's that whole bit, you know, where Val and Earl are like, there's some psycho yeah. cutting people's heads off. So that right. was going to be the whole first act. And then, so you knew you were getting something killing someone, but you mm-hmm. thought it was going to be a human. And again. But the script was called Land Sharks. <laughs> <laughs> I think once, because after Land Sharks, they dropped Land Sharks because there was some Saturday Night Live character that did that. And so then they were going to call it Beneath Perfection. And so. Right. Okay, yeah. that's good. Yeah. But, but also, okay, so you're suggesting your serial killer is beneath the town? <laughs> what is this? Like a house of wax situation? Well, I think it was a thing where you wouldn't know what it was until you actually saw it. But I mean, again, the thing is, though, I wouldn't mind that. But the problem is, if you promise a bunch of people a serial killer movie and then you mm-hmm. give them worms. Um, right. I mean, it's like primeval all over again, Joe. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, right? The movie already had difficulty with marketing, so you're going to now try to make it even more complicated. Also, I do love the idea, just to backtrack slightly. Yeah, we we were going to make them think it was a serial killer. Well, that just screams comedy to me. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, that's a good point. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so Val and Earl are doing odd jobs for Nestor, primarily. He's played by Richard Marcus, and that involves doing things like taking out his trash and running errands and all this other garbage. Like, clearly, they don't have a lot of reasons to stick around perfection. So when it kind of goes tits up, they just give up the gas and say, okay, pack up the RV, we're just going to leave this fucking town. To the point where they even dismiss a job offer from single mom Nancy, who, as we mentioned, is played by Charlotte Stewart. And they're going to go to to Bixby. This is the nearest town over, presumably quite a bit larger, more opportunities, and so on. But of course, they only get as far as the edge of the canyon when they stop to rescue 
they use the term booze hound. <laughs> so it's like, okay, rude. So they discover that this man, Edgar, who we will never meet, Trace, you described that additional scene, but basically yeah. they discover this man has died from dehydration after staying up in a radio tower. And that to me is where the movie is like, here's an intriguing mystery. Don't yeah. you want to stick around and find out why? And it's good. It's also kind of creepy because when the doctor's like, he died of dehydration. Doesn't that mm-hmm. take four days? <laughs> right. You're like, why would someone do that to themselves? That makes no sense. Also, his face is like the, 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 one of the first images I remember that like, haunted my dreams as oh, a child yeah. is this mm-hmm. guy's face. He looks like a dried up apple. <laughs> All right. So we've got a dead body. Let's cut to Fred, the sheep farmer, who is played by Michael Dan Wagner. And he gets attacked. And this coincides with uh, spikes on Rhonda's equipment. So she is a seismologist who's tracking, you know, uh, tremors in the valley. <laughs> Vibrations in the ground. And she keeps using smart words that she knows they're not going to know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. When she, when she calls dirt by its... Like, yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> She's like, like the on. dirt. <laughs> you, you know who you're talking to. I'm one of those people who absolutely hates it in movies where people say, um, can you like stop it with the science talk and just speak English? But I was really, <laughs> I was thinking, Rhonda, ma'am, think of your audience here. <laughs> Look around at the people you're talking to. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so we have every impression that Fred is dead, but then when Val and Earl drive by, uh, we do get some brief scenes of a couple of construction men working on the road and then they happen to get to Fred's farm and they discover all of the sheep have been killed. And also, oh boy, there's Fred. He did this. And they, oh, like, oh, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's so scary. <laughs> It's it's something about the permanent look of fear in his yeah. eyes. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. his entire face, head that's in the ground. It's just it's haunting. Well, it just looks so unnatural for a full-bodied person to only have their face exposed at ground level. You're like, wait, yeah. so he's possibly six feet deep in the ground? It's yeah. And that that absurd horror is mirrored with the car when they un they unbury the Ooh, headlights that's the one that freaks and me and then the they most. know oh my god that's in the ground that's mm-hmm. completely yeah i love it i also do like these little teases right so we're we're setting up that something bad is going to happen to somebody we don't always see it and then we'll come back to it later so i love mm-hmm. the tease with the construction men because you know like we know in this movie if you're on the ground you're at risk and mm-hmm. we see them jackhammering and doing stuff and you're just like Oh, we're probably not going to see them again later. <laughs> oh, God. The close-up, too, of, like, their brains inside the helmets. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Ooh. Don't see that yeah. on TV. Rough. Yeah. So they they do go next. Um, we get a great demonstration of how strong the Graboids are when they grab the, like, jackhammer and drag it through the concrete road. And I love that image. Which, okay, I love that they go the Jaws 2 route where they're like, hey, we have to maim one of these creatures to be, like, the big one. The ultimate yeah. Graboid that they have to kill at the end. Mm-hmm. And it's all stumpy. <laughs> love it. <laughs> Because you know what? We need an adversary. Like, these Graboids look great, but when Rhonda says, oh, there's at least three more of these things, you think, hmm, okay, well, it's just going to be a bunch of attacks. But I love the idea that there's also a smart one, and one who's, like, a visually distinguishable. Yeah. 
Absolutely. So these construction workers go down, and then uh, Val and Earl are attacked, and they barely get away. Um, and then when they get back to town, they're like, okay, so the phones are down, the road is blocked because of this landslide that happened when the construction workers bought it. And also, there is something attached to the back of this truck. So they peel it out, and they discover, okay, so we are dealing with some kind of creature, but they think it's it's just the extent of like what they have brought back to town on the truck. Like they don't assume it's much bigger, although they do know that would not be enough to kill all the sheep. Which is cool because, you know, you're they're They're presenting this monster. It's like uh, an iceberg. You see, Mm -hmm. well, this is pretty freaky and it clearly grabbed onto the, to the truck. So I mean, how many of these could be out there, Mm -hmm. but Oh no, it's something much bigger than that. (laughs) I think that's one of the smartest things about the creature design for this is that, yeah, right. like we get all these teases. We know it's something underground, but we're like, okay, cool. It's just a bunch of snake things. Mm-hmm. And they're just the tongue. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, we see this in a bunch of other creature movies. Like I immediately go to Deep Rising where we get a right. bunch of these tentacle things, but they're actually attached to a kind of Cthulhu. But mm. it always works. Like yeah, it, it always <laughs> works. I love the reveal that, oh, these things you thought were the thread, those are like the mouthpieces or the yeah. babies well, you haven't even met the main threat and yet. those sequels do it even more you know like in the second one we have like these fucking walkers that have heat vision that run out of it and then those things <laughs> yeah. shed and they become uh, flying ass blasters in the third one and it's just like this is so fun <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I do love that the creatures evolve over the sequels because I think it justifies new movies. It's not just, oh, we're doing basic Graboids all over again. Yeah, and that second one does play with your expectations on that because, again, you don't expect that's where it's going. Well, unless you've seen the cover of the box, but still. (laughs) (laughs) We learned our lesson, okay? We need to give the people what they want. Put it on the box. (laughs) Cooper almost didn't rent this the first time around because the monster didn't look the same. Though I realize when looking very closely at this image, it's really, really a fancy version of the tongues. Because hmm. um, it's got the hooks on each yeah. end. So it is a fancy, fancy, like, high-res version of those okay. tongue monsters. I will say, one of the things on this this anatomy diagram, um, there are yeah. venom <laughs> sacs in, in, in the uh, the tongues. And oh. we never see, like, what, what the venom does to someone. Like, if you get bit and no. then you survive. But, like, okay, does the venom do something to you? Like, are we talking, like, uh, chlorophyll, you're going to pop? <laughs> oh, God. Of course you would go there. I was like, oh, it probably <laughs> just sedates them so that they don't feel anything. Grace is like, no, they're going to pop, like, blood bags. <laughs> now, I did look because we mentioned it twice. They're called shriekers. Shrieker. Uh, oh my god, duh. It's mm. the last one's called Shrieker Island. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean it's like nothing... six. Who can remember? <laughs> I know I keep going back to that third movie, but there was a scene where um Chang's granddaughter kills one of them and she just goes, Ha! Ass blaster, blast your own goddamn ass. And I tell you, that 13-year-old Trace thought that was the funniest joke he'd ever heard in a movie his entire life. <laughs> And then fast forward to Trace on his first date with a man. So are you going to ass blast me? (laughs) Okay, go back. (laughs) All right. So we now move on to the scene that horrified me the most when I saw this. Mm -hmm. I guess it would have been, yeah, probably about eight or ten. So we have Dr. Jim, who was played by Conrad Bachman, and his wife, Megan, who is played by B.B. Besh. Oh, do you all know who this actress is, by the way? 
She looks familiar. So I did not know this. I have no connection to this, but she plays. Um, okay, it's the whoever Alice Eve plays in Star Trek Into Darkness, like Carol, whoever, what's her face? Mm. She plays that character in the original Star Trek films. Oh, really? Oh. Yeah. Okay, so she would have been sort of well-known by people at this point then. Yeah, so I don't know if we call this like, oh, it's a fun cameo or not, but mm-hmm. yeah, that, that's her primarily, like, that's what she's known for is that Star Trek role. Yeah, because this is a very weird scene in some ways, because we've actually met Dr. Jim. He was the one who sort of diagnosed what the Shrieker was when they pulled it off of the truck, but we didn't see Megan, unless I'm misremembering. So this is kind of our introduction to her, but like, Mm -hmm. Dr. Jim goes down pretty quickly after the generator is (laughs) removed from the premises. And so we're just left with this woman we don't really have a connection with. But this is a proper horror set piece. Like, she gets chased. She hides in the car. She locks the door. These things are attacking. And then the whole car goes down. And that image of just the lights angling up to face perfectly vertical haunted my dreams. By the way, that's a Roger Corman trick because the script had like you, you we saw this car like just like get pulled into the ground and they didn't have mm-hmm. the ability to do that. Yeah, we don't know the budget for that. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, they cut to like yeah, the, the the view of the horizon, which is also, by the way, a matte painting for the horizon mm. because they had to do special effects to do that. Right. Um but yeah, honestly, even watching this, I was like, oh my god, like I never thought this scene was the most horrifying because I was so focused on the looks of the dead bodies that we've seen earlier. But mm-hmm. imagine watching your spouse. Right. Get pulled into the ground, yep. screaming for help, and then you have to go survive, knowing that your like your your partner is dead, <laughs> like one hundred percent. This scene is the scariest thing in the movie. You are right. Yeah, and just honestly so well done. Like, I like the way that it's shot so that we're in the car with her, and then the windows break. and they... Yeah, when the, the dirt comes piling mm-hmm. in. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's intense, and it's very claustrophobic. Yeah. 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 Um, okay, so she did. <laughs> so we cut back uh the next morning and Melvin and Mindy, who as we mentioned is played by Ariana Richards, they're posing with this tentacle uh for photos, <laughs> which I love because it's exactly what you would see in these kinds of places, right? Like there are little rest stops mm-hmm. off the highway and if it's not House of a Thousand Corpses stuff, then you're <laughs> going to get, you know, Here's a weird thing in a jar that I found out in the desert. Do you want to take a picture of it for 5 to $15? Um, I, I always thought that Melvin was Nestor's son, and that is not the case, which means this is just a teenager just who lives living here. There. Yeah, he doesn't, he, doesn't have, uh, he doesn't have any connections to anyone else. Um, weirdly enough, too, <laughs> in the third one, he, oh uh, Melvin has become an evil lawyer who is coming to like buy out the town and turn it into like a Graboid theme park. <laughs> I mean, that tracks because I I debated how heavily to lean on Melvin as a shitty teenage boy. But then I realized, oh, he's just a shitty teenage boy. Like he's pulling pranks at really inopportune times. But the reality is, is that he doesn't think he's in danger until he gets attacked. And then he's, you know, very like, okay, I will cooperate. Please give me a gun so I can protect myself. <laughs> well, like, then he on. sort of picks up the Bill Paxton role from Aliens, you know? Like, yes, that direct quotation. Over, yeah. Ugh. I killed the whole podcast. No. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, he's being more of a baby than Mindy is in this entire movie. <laughs> oh, for sure. For sure. 
and Mindy clearly has no fucking idea what's going on throughout this entire movie. No, no, there there is a deleted scene where like whenever they they, they dig the trench when they're in the uh, the big tractor thing at the very end of the movie, and she's screaming mm-hmm. like, "I don't want to run to the rock! I don't want to run to the rock!" And I guess they cut that out because oh good, having a child be actually terrified is maybe a step too far for this movie. <laughs> Well, I think it also undermines what the movie is trying to do at that point. Like, we're we're trying to keep it action-y. I yeah. would argue that we're not actively looking to horrify people in those moments. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so as the kids are kind of fooling around with the Shrieker, the adults realize that they're completely cut off from the outside world, and they they don't really know how to go about it. So they think, okay... Let's use horses, since we can't get by this landslide, horses we can use. So we see Val and Earl volunteer to do this, and they're riding out. It's it's gorgeous. It's like, hey, did you ever want a vacation in the Midwest? Come on, ride horses with us. And then, of course, because... Sorry, I joked about how it would have been ridiculous to have a serial killer storyline in this movie, but then I realized that Val and Earl are basically final girls who just keep stumbling upon fucking bodies everywhere they go. They do. Yeah, 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 you're right. I've never thought about it like that, but that is the thing. They're the ones that keep finding all these bodies. All this movie's missing is a sheriff saying, Right? So how did you get there? Uh-huh. Like, I, I'm starting to suspect you boys might be up to something. Oh, wait, you're uh, just fucking each other. Never mind. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you're still getting arrested. There we go. Yeah. Because it is 1990. So they, they discover this buried car at docks, and then their horses are attacked and more or less murdered by the Shriekers. Okay. Um, a shriekers are the ones from part two. It's the tongues that are in the mouth. But, oh damn it! But I don't know if this happens on like a non four K set. But when you <laughs> when it cuts to the 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 horse that's wrapped up in this tentacle thing, mm-hmm. you can see. Uh, I saw the I saw the string. The now. string. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, okay. Or or the wire or whatever. I, yeah. I, it was the only moment I noticed the puppetry. Yep. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, but, I mean, in fairness, the puppetry for the rest of it's probably some guy's arm in a... There's a lot of miniature work in this film, which I had yeah, no right. idea about. Most of the stuff in Burton Heather's basement, that's a miniature. Oh, yeah, really? And, okay. and you can only really see it in that one shot where Bert is matted into the shot. Mm. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, there's a scene where like it cuts from like Bert's foot and like just no, it doesn't cut. Sorry, it just you pan it or whatever yeah. moves over to the to the graboid. There is a blink and you miss it cut to to, to where it looks like it's the same shot, but it's not because mm. we're cutting from the full size to the miniature. Wow. They really did a good job uh, hiding that overall. Well, right. even this Cooper. So like again, we're about to have you know Valor will get chased by this graboid, and mm-hmm. there's a part where you see all the fence posts start to bend down. Yeah. And there's a bunch so of good. dust that comes up from each post, and that was rotoscoped in post-production, is the dust. Really? Yeah. No shit. Mm-hmm. That is like, ooh, the attention to detail. So good. Whoa. So good. And again, and that again brings us with the, with the Jaws-type tension building, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it is like the barrels, because we're seeing this thing that would be so expensive right. to actually be showing us, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and we're seeing it move through the desert under the desert it's it's really so clever and so effective yeah yes yeah hard agree absolutely it's it's one of those things where not to pretend like we're not living in a good day and age for filmmaking but it does make me wax nostalgic a little bit about good old days for i'm just yeah. like these movies 
I feel like they had a more inherent trust in their audience to go along with, okay, mm. we're going to show you things after a, a point. Like when we have the, the kind of money shot, then you will see the creature. But until then, we're going to do our damnedest to make you thrilled and hope that that's enough. And I feel like movies like Jaws and Arachnophobia and yes, this movie as well, mm. all do that to a really good degree. Whereas nowadays it'd be like, okay, uh, how do we get this in here as early as possible so that we can have that money shot? Yep. I, I don't mind CGI, but you know, we would always have a CGI version of this if it ever got remade. Mm-hmm. Oh, 100%. And it just yeah. sucks though, because like you're seeing so much creativity on the screen here that, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I, like you, Joe, I don't want to be like, oh, the good old days. But unfortunately, yeah, th- this would just never happen today. Right. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm of the uh, opinion that oftentimes when we're nostalgic about some types of old special effects, it's a little bit just dickish nostalgia. You know, like right, right. there are some really shitty shots in the early Indiana Jones movies, and I don't know that the CGI is worse than those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, at the same time, you have these instances where these things are done so effectively. And like I look at uh, Audrey too from Little Shop of Horrors right. as being like the single greatest practical effect achievement in history, hmm. and it would be digital completely now. Yes, because they'd have to. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. The shark in Jaws, in my opinion, does not look good because it doesn't look like <laughs> a fucking not. shark. Like it looks like a shark, but it doesn't look like a real shark. Like it's clearly an animatronic monster. Mm-hmm. What the graboids have as a benefit is these aren't real things, so they don't have right. to look like anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it is very believable right. when it comes out. Like the oh, yeah. the uh, the internals of its mouth are detailed in ways that mm-hmm. are unexpected, like the, mm-hmm. the little black dots. Are those going to grow up to be more tongues? What is right. this? What am I seeing? You know? Yeah. And I really, I think that, I think you're right. Because it's something we've never seen before, they can give us something that just, we buy it. Like mm-hmm. the, the blood that comes out of it, that orange, Ooh, I love um, it. Yeah. watery stuff. We buy it. And then when they explode, at the, like, look at the different organs you see in mm-hmm, there. Mm-hmm. And they're not like any animal we've ever seen before. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's where it benefits. I mean, look, I love Jaws. I love it so much. But there's oh, yeah. never a single moment in that film where I'm like, yeah, that shark looks pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even when it swims by the boat, it's not it's not moving its tail. It's no! <laughs> It's just tracking next to the boat. I'm sorry. People can shit on the CGI in Deep Blue Sea all they want, but that CGI looks good for 1999. I'm sorry. And they look like sharks. Oh my God. We're going to get canceled. I know. We're right? bad taste on Jaws now. I mean, I mean, I, I will just say Jaws is a five-star film. One of oh, the yeah, greatest great. of all times. But it, let's be honest here. Sharks don't have flaps on the bottom of their mouths. Puppets do. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I I do love this scene, though, where, you know, we've got a good chase. It's exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The reveal of the Graboid, it's done in stages. So we see the, as you mentioned, Cooper, the kind of orangey, liquidy blood trickling out when it crashes into that kind of aqueduct concrete yeah, wall. That, and that is so good. That is mm-hmm. just such a brilliant accidental kill. Yes. Right. And my fate, the delivery of fuck you yeah mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> <laughs> so and good. i i'm someone who always enjoys a good pg-13 fuck oh life. right perfect use of it right here because you gotta earn them right you got yeah yeah 
make it make it worth. But you know what? The, the movie has fun with its cursing because you know we have we have the running gag of pardon my French with Earl, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I've never really caught it. But there's literally a part it's about to come up when he just goes, "Son of a goddamn bitch." Pardon my French. Mm-hmm. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Yeah, so Rhonda does appear on the scene at this point and they dig out the creature. So like we didn't really get a sense of scope until they pull down part of the wall and then we get to see the creature in all of its glory and we realize so just how big it actually is. And it's yeah. great, right? Like, it dwarfs them in terms of size. Well, and this is the end of the first act, too. So we haven't discussed mm-hmm. the pacing. But when I I always inv- thought this was about like a 105-minute movie. So it's like 95 minutes. And I was mm-hmm. shocked. This movie is expertly paced. Right. It, it, it is structured exactly in the three-act structure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they really understood exactly when to hit those marks. And then like, okay, now we sort of reinvent the movie. Let's move things along. And the creature design here is, I mean, not only not only the details we were talking about, but if you look at it, the the beak-like or bone-like mouth. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I've seen this a ton of times, and this is the first time I think I've seen it in HD. And it was really just an impressive choice because it looks so tactile mm-hmm. and doesn't look like, you know, a foam latex creature. No. Yeah. And the beak was modeled after a snapping turtle. Mm-hmm. Ah, that totally makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 It, it's a very thoughtful, very deliberately constructed creature, and it's highly memorable. And I love that we think, okay... The danger is now over, but we also recognize, as you said, you know, this is the end of act one. There's still two more acts of this movie to go. So Rhonda just immediately says, oh, well, according to my equipment and the readings I've gathered over the last couple of weeks, there's three more of these things. You're like, (laughs) well, fuck. (laughs) So... This is where they end up getting trapped on the rocks by Stumpy. We have to spend the night. And if you are clocking the queer coding reading, it's all very sad when Earl wakes up in the morning and he's kind of been left to the side so that uh, Val and Rhonda can kind of snuggle up. Man, I'm not one of those people that asks about bathroom stuff in movies because suspension of disbelief. But I'm telling you right now, I would have had diarrhea from that scare and need to shit at the end of that rock. Like, I'm sorry. (laughs) Everyone just avoid the eastern side of the rock. It um, it got covered in graboid juices. Yeah. I mean, they do smell bad, so... There you yeah, go. You, you would never you know. know. You, you, you can always blame it on the graboids. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we do get a lot of references to how bad they smell, which I find Yeah, I amusing. think that's in, an interesting thing that they never really connected with. Mm-mm. Like, is it the digestion of the, the things it's eaten? Is right. it the thing itself? And I find that interesting that they lay that out and not feel the need to explain it more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They explain nothing about this creature because I was even thinking it's eaten so many things at this point. Why is it still hungry for them as they sit yeah. on this rock? Because they discover in the morning it's still there waiting for them. And I love that the movie doesn't say, oh, well, it needs to eat 16 horses or five <laughs> people a day to keep itself. <laughs> it's like, no, we're not doing that. It's just there. It wants to eat you. I mean, going back to Jaws, it's an eating machine. It eats, it kills, it doesn't sleep even, actually. So Mm -hmm. there you go. And going back to Jaws 4, sometimes animals want revenge. Yes. (laughs) And this is very much the case with Stumpy. Yeah. (laughs) 
he will not rest until he kills them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is where we get our jaunty pole vaulting scene, and they yeah. barely make an escape in the truck. And they totally picked up poles that were much smaller than those, right? <laughs> yes, one hundred percent. Because like they they were like five foot poles, and then suddenly they're they're twelve feet. I need you to tell me if I'm being, if I'm reaching here too much, but whenever Rhonda gets in the car and you're, she's like, she has her ass sticking out and she's starting <laughs> mm-hmm. it. But there's a shot where one of the tentacle snakes like bashes and like breaks the window. Oh yeah. It's very Anaconda. See, I was thinking Halloween whenever uh, the nurse is oh, in yeah. the car and like his hand comes down and breaks it. Uh, okay. But it's not, it's not, you know, that's a slasher to this creature feature, but it, it, it looked shot like very similarly just in the daylight. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. I mean, mine's better. But yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, yours is definitely better. <laughs> also, go and listen to our audio commentary on Anaconda. And also Arachnophobia, because we have ones on both of those. So. Yes, yes, yes. And we both love them. It's true. It's true. Yeah. All right. So they head back to town. Uh, they've got more information now. We also realize as they're driving, we get a quick little glimpse that there has been a really sad person who was sent out to repair the telephone lines who also did not make it. Don't get a name. No one ever acknowledges that this person has died. It's just for us, the audience. (laughs) (laughs) We very quickly realize that all of the attacks have been uh, grouped on the perimeters of the valley, but they're starting to come closer. So we uh, realize that, oh shit, the town's probably going to get attacked. Oh shit, it's happening right fucking now. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, this it doesn't take any Mm-mm. moment to breathe this movie. No. No. It just goes. Yeah. So we get, you know, Melvin doing his basketball. I'm oh, sorry. Walter does name them graboids. <laughs> mm-hmm. This is true. We've been brainstorming names. <laughs> they they almost do worm wormoids. Oh my god. Terrible. Yeah. I mean, I don't even like the name graboids, but I appreciate no. that this man has to die to cement the name in because we're doing it as a memorial. <laughs> I don't know about y'all, but this this actor too that plays Walter Chang, um, he's to me will always be the grandpa in three ninjas. Mm-hmm. 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 Even I think IMDB feels that way because that's his fucking picture. Oh, shit. <laughs> I was just like, uh, IMDB, are we being a little racist? I mean, I know he played the character, but okay. I mean, did you want his picture from Big Trouble in Little China to be his shit, profile No, it is the Big Trouble in Little China character. Ah! That's what it is. <laughs> um, okay, so yeah, Melvin's doing this basketball shit. But here's the thing. So Mindy's on the pogo stick because like, yes. oh, we just did not make noise. And Mindy's on the pogo stick. When Val tackles this child off of this mm-hmm. pogo stick, the pogo stick remains standing? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> it does. Pogo sticks were magical. Nobody God. knows this, but back in the 90s, they had supernatural capabilities. Man, I had a pogo stick growing up, and I could never figure that thing no. out. I was so bad at that. It's a lot of coordination, isn't it? I guess. I was a skateboarder, so this was, like, not my thing. This was for oh. children. Wait, <laughs> You were a, I, a, I couldn't figure wow. out a skateboard either. I cannot do skateboards. Yeah. You were a skateboarder? Mm-hmm. <laughs> How has this never come up in five years? <laughs> I didn't say I was very good. I mean, <laughs> let's just say I spend a lot of time on my knees, uh, scraping shit. Oh my God, I'm glad <laughs> my you My mom said was that. basically just saying, get out of the house. You annoy me. So it was like, take the skateboard and go. Love you, mom. <laughs> Wait, Cooper, mom. did you have a did you have a skateboard or a, or a pogo stick? I uh, I uh, have actually. My family has a home video of my first and last moments on a skateboard. Oh, when my brother got one for his birthday, I take a 
a 20, uh, 20 second ride fall off mm-hmm. and I hand it back. There we <laughs> go. That's it. Yep, that was go. that was all I needed to know. A one and done. Love it. Yeah. I'm not coordinated like that. Right. <laughs> so we do rescue Mindy from her pogo stick, and then we have to rescue Rhonda, who has gotten wrapped up in barbed wire. This is when she loses her pants. This <laughs> happens all in quick succession. Like there is yeah. no moments to breathe during this entire attack sequence. Until we basically end up uh, back in Chang's store. And it's like, okay, now we'll have a moment to collect ourselves. I always forget this, though. So after they pull her pants off, you know, we have the one grab that's right there. And then literally another one pops up out of the ground right behind them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so good. <laughs> I, I really love the moment, too, when the Graboy takes the pants uh, two by four and mm-hmm. barbed wire into its mouth. Oh, sure. And just breaks the two by four. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's like you see the power of the tongue, not the mouth, Mm -hmm. the tongue there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, because for so long, we just kind of think that they're vehicles to collect things and drag Mm -hmm. them into the mouth. And then we realize, no, these things seem to have a certain autonomy of their own, but also they are wicked powerful. It's like they're all muscle. Well, mm-hmm. and that's the thing too, because you know sometimes when like monster movies do a monster, it's you know clearly a fake thing. But the the the, the machine itself doesn't look very strong, right? This does. Like this looks yeah. like a strong creature. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Like it, we're used to seeing people like grab something and beat beat the monster and then be able to get away. And in this movie, if they've got you, you're pretty fucked. They're just so fat and heavy. Yeah. Well, there is that too. (laughs) (laughs) So we're hanging out in Chang's store. Everything seems to be fine. And then the freezer kicks in. So Mm. we try to unplug it. And this is when Chang sadly dies. Because, of course, even though we're inside and I'm using air quotes, we're still basically just standing on two by fours on top of the desert floor. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, yeah, we we see this man half in, half out of this thing's mouth, just mm-hmm. flailing around. And Cooper, as you said, you know, you, the second you see the blood coming out of his nose, it's like, oh, yeah. you know, it's because it, it's it's like these indicators in movies that couldn't show you gore, <laughs> mm-hmm. like the blood, like a trail of blood coming from the side of the mouth. Mm-hmm. You know that's bad, right? You yeah. know somebody's got internal bleeding then. So when the blood's coming out of his nose, it's like, okay, I think this is done. He's done. Oh, sure. Because in movies, when people have blood that comes out of their mouth and or nose, it means they're either using their supernatural abilities and they're going to be nosebleed, <laughs> or they have severe internal bleeding yeah. and they are going to die immediately. Well, and it sucks, though, because here's the thing. They rush over to this thing to turn it off when, as you already learned, they can just leave it there and that's the distraction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Oops. What a save them. Yep. <laughs> So we realize we're not safe on the ground. So everybody climbs the shells. We find a hatch to get up onto the roof. But oh shit, the graboid is already breaking through. This is when Rhonda gets knocked out the window. I love this sequence. So good. Watching it now, it also reminds me of the sequence in The Mummy. (laughs) Where Evelyn knocks over all of the library stacks. Um, Which, by the way, I think that also happens because I think they do a redux of that scene in Jungle Cruise. Yes, they do. Oh, that movie is basically just the mummy redux. But Disney. But Disney, yeah. Uh, Basically, at the end of this sequence, everyone is now up on the roof. So we seem to be safe for the moment. 
This is when we transition over to Bert and Heather, because, of course, they were not here for any of this. So they begin sorting their bullets. I okay. don't know how else to say that, because I don't know what the fuck they're doing. Dude, Joe, I wrote in my notes. It, uh, I remember this thing as a kid being like, what is that? But I wrote bullet gravel vibrator thingy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, are they shining them? Are they putting sawdust into them? I don't know. I kind of don't really want to care because that means that I would have to know things about guns and that's not my bag. Well, I, but I, I'm not disputing the fact that this is a fake machine. It, clearly it exists and has a purpose, but mm-hmm. I don't know what this is for. <laughs> I have a guess. I play Red Dead Redemption and I know that bullets that are slightly scored mm-hmm. tend to work better so i imagine Mm. bullets that are slightly abrased might be better i have no idea though god okay uh don't email us i don't it it just shows you a lot of bullets and then a lot of guns yes Yes. (laughs) yeah i mean this is our introduction to bert and heather's space we know that they live in a compound sort of on the fringe of town and yeah, basically, when this thing starts to break through, we we get some moments of comedy where we're literally playing telephone with the radio, mm-hmm. saying, you know, oh, you need to stop. And okay, okay, sure. What? How many? But how many times do they tell them get on the roof? Yeah. And they're mm-hmm. like, what? What do you what? mean, get on the roof? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they they play the game that we can't understand you through the radio, but everything's coming through so clear yeah. mm-hmm. that it it makes no sense as an audience. Mm-hmm. But also, why doesn't Val? I'll say something like stop making fucking noise <laughs> because he's just like get on the roof get on the roof and they're like sorry we're cleaning our bullets what are you talking about right now? <laughs> okay but in terms of special effects this thing oh my god oh yeah is fantastic i think possibly the best one in the movie and again mm-hmm. when it first comes out that's a real life thing it's a I'm sorry real size like a life-size thing Right. Every time we come back to this thing, yeah, they they completely redid the entire room, mm-hmm. every tile, every weapon, everything on the walls wow. in miniature, and it's basically a guy with a hand puppet controlling the graboid. <laughs> I awesome. love that. And honestly, you two talked about it, so I'm totally trusting you. Didn't know when I was no. watching. I was, I think, it partially because this is an action sequence, and I'm so wrapped up in it. Mm-hmm. But also, I think it's really, really well done. Yeah, and and. The only moment it tipped its hand at me was when you saw that Bert was matted into a shot. Mm-hmm. And that's that's one single shot in this sequence. But other than that, it's, I mean, it's so memorable and so intense. And I remember loving this mm-hmm. as a kid because I'm someone who, you know, I, I don't like guns at all. No. But I love people fighting back against monsters in a big way mm. because I think people never go big enough. Right. Mm. And so Bert pulling the elephant gun out of the cabinet, <laughs> that's, that's fucking awesome. Yeah. I mean, there's something to be said where the movie knows enough to treat this like a bit of a reveal too, right? Like they have a couple <laughs> of guns and you think, okay, they're probably going to die here. And then we just sort of pan over and it's a wall <laughs> right. full of fucking guns. <laughs> well, but, but there is a moment though, because basically once it comes through, you know, the radio cuts out and we have Kevin Bacon that just looks like, oh shit. Wow. Yeah, we lost He's them. Sure they're they're dead. Dead, yeah. But then it's like two seconds later, we just hear the guns going off. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. And they shoot the fuck out of this thing. 
That's true. Yeah, this mother humper goes down hard. <laughs> Broke into the wrong goddamn rec room, didn't you, you <laughs> bastard? I feel like that's the moment that probably secured Michael Gross his uh, many successive yeah. sequels because it is such a fuck yeah moment for that character that even me as a an extreme gun pacifist and not really liking the political ideology of who these characters maybe are. I'm just like, you know what? I'm really happy he survived, and I like this moment for him. I mean, not to get too deep into the politics of this, but again, for me, they are the equivalent of Aaron, Sharni Vincent, in Your Next. Like, they are a a survivalist, so they're not, like, Mm -hmm. going out, like, wanting to shoot things. It is purely like, hey, we have this all here just in case. Yeah. Yeah, I think what rubs me the wrong way is that they clearly move to this town that has a population of 14 people so that they could fend solely for themselves. Like, we do get a sense that they are a part of this community. They end up working with everybody to help save them. Without them and their pipe bombs, we would not have a rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. And yet, if you pull back from the film itself, the idea of people saying, oh, well, we're just going to go and live off the grid for ourselves. I'm like, no. We are humans. We are a community. You need to like look after other people as well. Ooh, I know you and I disagree on these principles. <laughs> yeah, I don't care about other people. Um, <laughs> but I, I will say, when it comes to the the gun bit here, mm-hmm. this feels a lot to me like the moment in uh, Dawn of the Dead when oh. they go down into the gun store. Yes, and so it's it's the arming up uh-huh. because yeah. up until now we've seen these creatures as being really strong really fast Mm -hmm. really powerful and at the beginning of this fight they can't do it yeah they can't beat them and even it's not until the very end that they finally get the best of them and who knows if it's that elephant gun or the succession of every gun Mm -hmm. we've already shot Mm -hmm. at it that kills it so it really just ups the stakes on how fucking hard this thing is to kill right but also simultaneously confirms that human beings can kill them because in in a way valinero get lucky with the first one this one is a hundred percent bert and heather and their massive firepower well and if it was able to go backwards which i don't think it can do it would have been fine it it, like it's just stuck it got stuck (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so we have now killed two. So according to Rhonda's statistics, we have two remaining. And Stumpy is one of them. Stumpy is one of them. So the humans begin to plot, okay, we're all on the roof. How do we get out of here? Because we're still in the valley. We still don't have roads. We need to get to the mountains where at least we could make our way over and get to Bixby. So they begin planning. But this is also where we see that Stumpy is learning and planning and plotting so uh all of the houses start to get attacked to determine their structural stability and this Mm -hmm. is where they realize they don't have time they need to get out of there very quickly see and and that that the suspense is so much better right because you're Mm -hmm. kind of okay we're kind of in a bit of a lull because they're all safe no 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 no. No. they're on a ticking clock right now Yeah. yeah and especially just to make sure that we the audience understand that we kill off another person. So Nestor on the RV goes down and then he just gets sucked through a tire. So he's gone. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's sucked through a tire. That's that's rough. Mm -hmm. Well, I think what makes it scarier to me is that you can still hear him screaming as it's underground, like going away from the tire. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So this is where we come up with the plan to use the bulldozer to drag the uh, semi up to the mountains. And of course, uh, in the big dick contest, we have Val (laughs) and Earl vying for who should go because who's more manly? And uh, ultimately, Val ends up going for it. See, okay. After literally elbowing well, his best friend in the stomach. No, I was going to say, so you could read this as, okay, Val wants to impress Rhonda and save the day. Sure. Or you can read this as Val doesn't want his lover mm-hmm. to die. And so right. he and takes no, his spot instead. Actually, I think even if you don't read it in, a, in that queer subtext, mm-hmm. I never got the sense that he was doing it for Rhonda. No. I totally felt that he thought he could do it and he didn't want earl to get hurt right yeah yeah well i don't think it's a stretch to say that even if you don't subscribe to a queer reading of this movie at the end of the day the film is more interested in the relationship between val and earl which is why i think it lends itself to the queer reading yeah no matter what these are two guys who love each other and that that is never in question in the movie Mm -hmm. yeah homosocial or homosexual yeah the the movie likes these two men and they like each other exactly so val ends up going for it and very quickly realizes he's not going to make it because this bulldozer is too far away and the graboids are too fast so it requires a kind of group effort of everyone banging and making noise this is where Rhonda uses her smarts to say oh i'm on a water tower water would attract them <laughs> uh so val ends up making it um I know we've talked about the score a lot. I don't, I, it's always the happier parts of the score that I remember, mm-hmm. but, but this scene when, yeah, when Val has to like lift his legs and, this, Ooh, and the tentacles, like, sweet, yeah. the, the score doing this is really, really, really good. Mm-hmm. That also felt the most like a Western to yes. me. Mm-hmm. Like, like he's trying to avoid a, a copperhead, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it really felt like that visceral terror of needing to be perfectly still. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm really glad that you brought up the fact that this is a Western, Cooper, because mm-hmm. we haven't addressed it. But obviously, you know, we're talking about a frontier town. We're talking about some pretty classic archetypal characters where mm-hmm. we've got, I mean, I think it's more Val than Earl, but he's kind of like the sort of loner who doesn't quite fit in. But he ultimately ends up becoming the hero, saving the town and being the the person that everyone else knew he always had the capacity to be well in chang's market is like your local saloon or watering hole oh yeah mm-hmm. totally mm-hmm. yeah and of course it's uh marginalized people who have a tendency well, to bite yeah well so. <laughs> <laughs> and that says something about the movie though joe because i mean cooper i don't know about you but joe and i are not the biggest fans of the western not genre so I'm, not. I'm not either, no. <laughs> i i see it's like the mario levels no one likes the desert levels in mario i don't like the desert levels in films <laughs> <laughs> I, I see desert and I'm like, oh, so boring. <laughs> no, that's that's brilliant. I love that. I mean, there's there's something to be said about how the film uses the kind of picturesque beauty of this location. Like, I do think it looks really gorgeous, and I I sort of gently mock the fact that it looks like a a travel recruitment video when they're on horseback. But it's like. It looks nice, right? I mean, being out there in the open wilderness, if it wasn't so damn threatening, like if you weren't going to get sucked under the ground at every fucking moment, this seems like it would be a nice place to say, oh, I'm retiring and I never want to meet people again. And I feel like you can see where Ron Underwood 
got the urge to do city slickers. Right. Yeah. Oh my god. Yes. Which I've never seen and probably never will. But oh, it's, oh, it's wonderful. it is really good. Yeah. I don't it care. is wonderful. <laughs> it, it's a lot more about male homosocial bonding as well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the electricians both had mustaches. One was a little bit bigger. One was tall and skinny. Mm-hmm. I thought Mario Brothers. Right. Mm. But then Tony Gennaro as Miguel shows up and he is like Mario personified. Right. Oh my God, get him a red cap. That is fucking Mario. <laughs> We're going to make a sequel slash remake to that <laughs> Super Mario Brothers movie eventually. So, I mean, the Tremors are basically the Goombas. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the Tremors. Oh my God, the Graboids. <laughs> the Tremors. Same difference. We all knew what you meant. <laughs> So they end up picking up Bert and Heather and they head out. We are armed with pipe bombs. And I do love the fact that you think, okay, what could possibly get in their way now? Because we're in this <laughs> armored vehicle. Like they literally describe it as an armored vehicle. And then they just fall head first into a trap that the Graboids yeah. have laid out for them. I do, do, do love though. And I, I, I've never noticed this line of dialogue until this watch. I don't know why, but it's when they're driving away and Bert just goes... <laughs> Food for five years, a thousand gallons of gas, <laughs> air filtration, water filtration, Geiger counter bomb shelter, <sighs> underground goddamn monsters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that place did not look cheap. And I can't even no. imagine getting building supplies. Like, the rest of the town looks fucking rickety as fuck. So, to see that compound looking very pristine, very well constructed... And yeah, they just lose it all in a minute. And they still want to go back there when they get stuck in there. Like, we could have gone back. No, fucker, your wall had a hole in it. (laughs) (laughs) Sure, you just, you can't use the basement anymore. That's all. (laughs) But isn't that the bomb shelter? Yeah, that is the bomb bomb shelter. (laughs) That's the good part. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Now they're just left with a house. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we, we have fallen into this trap. And all of a sudden, it means that we cannot move forward. So we're maybe protected, but for how long? Question mark. We need to get moving. So we see an outpost of rocks, and everybody makes a run for it. This is good. Everybody makes it. So there's there's tension, but we don't lose anyone here. So then uh, we make it to the rocks and realize, well, okay, we're still alive, but we're fucking stranded. And we're probably all going to die of starvation. So... I do like this moment where Earl and Heather end up having to kind of talk their respective spouses down when they get into a fight. So Val <laughs> and Bert really want to fight it out. And yeah. it's like, honey, honey, no, come on, let's just come over here. Let's just take a time out. It, it's interesting because like Reba McIntyre, like, she's good in this movie, but she doesn't really get anything showy to do, which no. I'm happy that she took this role. I don't know why she took this role, to be honest, for her first film role, but she wanted to sing over the credits. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're we'll give right. You a song. Yeah. But I always, yeah, I get a kick out of that when they were when they're calming down their respective spouses, and she's just like, "I know, I know." He thinks he knows everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like she's completely on Bert's side, even though oh, she's yeah. calming him down. <laughs> well, that's when you're like, okay, well, nobody wins when we fight, but also we both know without. You're right. Okay. okay. You're right. You're right. <laughs> exactly. This this is the moment also where we get my favorite line from the the movie where they talk about what kind of fuse is this? <gasps> yes. Fuse. What what's it for? My cannon. <laughs> but also, don't talk about a cannon and then never show. Not have a cannon. I know, Ooh. right? Now, now you you needed to see the cannon. Yeah. 
Yeah. Even just like in the distance, like the cannon toppling off of the edge of the <laughs> compound as the graboid hits it or something. Yes. <sighs> but also, where was that cannon? I mean, we don't know. I think it's I just know. a line. I think it's I'm, a funny I'm, line. I mean, if we want to actually talk about the logistics of having a cannon, <laughs> it's not in the basement. It's in the backyard. Yeah. Well, exactly. I was thinking it'd be on the roof. That would also make sense. Yeah. <laughs> sure. we didn't see it on the roof so it must be in the backyard yeah so we discovered in the rush to get to this rocky outposting uh we did use one of the pipe bombs and it seemed to scare the graboids away because we realized oh they're so sensitive to sound that that loud explosion might be enough to draw them so what if we use this like a fishing line this is what earl hypothesizes so we reel them in get them to eat the bomb and then we blow them up so we try this with one and we are successful so we have killed three and now we only have stumpy the beat though the beat when they're all cheering and then they just get rained on with the guts love it i also love that melvin gets it like full in the face uh melvin sucks (laughs) although that moment where he yells at bert for giving him an empty gun yes (laughs) delightful Okay, so we try this again with Stumpy. Same tactic. It doesn't work. Stumpy is too smart for this. And in fact, this to me is like the most ridiculous moment of the film. But Mm -hmm. I also fucking love it where it spits the pipe bomb back at them and then blows up their stash. Yeah, right. But okay, I I don't understand because they're like, what are you doing out there? Because Earl, Val, and Rhonda have all been flown like 50 feet away from this rock. (laughs) (laughs) It's a little extravagant. They probably wouldn't be that far away, but for the purposes of setting up our climax, it works. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so our trio are out and unprotected, and they could try to make a run for it, but they only have one pipe bomb left. And Val decides, nope, I'm going to be the hero. I'm going to run. And then Earl decides... I love you and I want to be with you forever. I'm also going to run with you. And then Rhonda's like, oh, wait, I'm in this movie. I have a lighter. I need to come with you. <laughs> so they make it to the edge of the cliff. And this is when they use the last remaining pipe bomb to cause a stampede, bringing the movie full circle from the commentary yeah. that we had at the beginning. And Stumpy flies over the side of the cliff and explodes on the canyon floor below. And it is so goopy mm-hmm. i just yeah. cheer every time because practical effects and a miniature in such a realistic way mm-hmm. yeah yeah but this is a miniature they built the uh cliff yeah. wall and just mm-hmm. threw a mini thing off and splatted it so good it looks like what happens if you throw a sweet potato off of yeah. <laughs> a baked sweet potato <laughs> yes yeah if it's raw it's not gonna do this <laughs> Uh, it's so good. So yes, uh, this is basically the end of the movie. We do get a final photo pose with the two lovers. Sorry, I mean Earl and Val. And then, yeah, Val ultimately chooses Rhonda so that we can get our Reba song over the credits. <laughs> Boo. But you know what? Earl does get a little twink boyfriend in the second movie, along with another woman to string along. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> and see when you're when you're polyamorous and bi you can just assume they're in a triad well okay so i i will confess because i knew you were coming on to talk about this <laughs> with us i did sort of go there but i did think that's a very plausible reading too like i do 
actually read this movie that Val, he's not gay, but I do think he has a love and affection for Earl. Mm-hmm. Oh, totally. I do consider Earl to be gay or possibly bi. And then the end of this movie, when you see them together, you're like, if we didn't have that kiss and it was just kind of the three of them hovering around each other, it's like, oh, yeah, they're going to go off and yeah. be a throuple for sure. Totally. I mean, I am happy that there is no competition for Rhonda between Val right. and yeah, Earl. Yeah, that would have been the most obvious direction uh-huh. to take this kind of thing. Yes. And we've seen it in so many other movies as well. And it's boring. It's really yeah. fucking oh, boring. Really? Yeah. Yeah. But um, that is Tremors. <laughs> that is Tremors. What a fucking movie. And I will tell you, yeah. it's still a five star film for me. Mm-hmm. I just, this movie does everything right. Great practical effects, great character work. It pays so well. As you said, Cooper, it's just structured expertly. I, mm-hmm. I fucking love this movie. It, it earns every single accolade it's ever gotten. And like, if you're an indie horror writer, especially, looking at the structure of this mm. film and the act breaks, like you could take this, it, it is taking Jaws. So it's not right. like oh, reinventing yeah. the wheel. But you could take this and apply it to so many different types of monster movies and have them all be totally unique and interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I often speculate where movies go wrong. And I will say I often end up landing on the script. Like if you don't have a good script, it doesn't Mm -hmm. you can have great actors, you can have great direction, special effects, but it's really hard to make up for that deficiency from the base narrative. And yet. When you get it all right like this, it's just kind of like yeah. proof positive. Like, oh shit, if you start with a strong script and then you put all the time and energy that these people clearly did into these various facets, like, it doesn't matter that this is only $11 million because it looks like 50 or 60. Well, but it's also, and you can go into the script, it's simple. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are. There's nothing too complicated here, unless you want to call the mere existence of the graboids themselves as complicated or complex, which I don't think they are because they're just your basic, quote unquote, monster. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I mean, if we can believe that Godzilla is under the ocean, right? Yeah, we can believe that these things are under the ground. But like, mm-hmm. we just can with a cast of characters that again is like ten characters large and. Right. Yeah. At least every one of them at least makes an impression. Like, sure, Melvin and Mindy and Mindy's mom aren't, like, super, super fleshed out characters, Mm -hmm. but they're given enough to do where you get all of them. And you worry if they are in jeopardy, right? Like, there Mm -hmm. were a couple of characters here where I couldn't quite remember who bites it and who makes it to the armored vehicle at the end. And I love it that in a zombie film or a creature feature, like, I need to care about these characters because it can't just be, oh, I want J-Lo to fight the giant snake at the end. Like, yeah, that's good. But I also need a strong supporting cast. And this movie does that, even though you're right. Yeah. yeah, Like, they are very secondary characters. We know very little about most of the rest of them, but it all still works. And not only are they are they great uh, characters simply uh but the the casting is really good like i think i think you what you mentioned that heather gummer doesn't isn't a showy role mm-hmm. but you give it to reba right. and it's interesting because it's reba yeah that is you know smart. nancy mindy's mother is fucking charlotte stewart from eraserhead oh. it's it, she's <sighs> and twin peaks Right. Oh, oh! It's so yeah. funny. I was trying to place her the whole time. <laughs> well, because I wrote in my notes, I called her not D Wallace. <laughs> there is that. She a very, very, very D Wallace esque. 
But yeah, she's the she's the main character from Eraserhead that's not uh, Eraserhead. <laughs> and uh, Bobby Briggs' mother in Twin Peaks. Oh, yeah. yes. Okay. Mm. God. <sighs> and and you get like like uh, Tony Gennaro, he's so vivid. Victor Wong is so you know all these characters are interesting in and of themselves mm-hmm. as actors, and so they come in and you go with it because you don't need more information about them. They tell it with their face, with their with themselves. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, all that to say, I mean, I think we're all in agreement, right? Trimmers rules. Oh yeah, oh, totally. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> All right, everyone. Well, before we announce what we're covering next week, uh, Cooper, first of all, thank you so much for coming onto the show. This has been a delight to chat about. My pleasure. But let everyone know, where can they find you on social media? Uh, I'm at Cooper S. Beckett kind of everywhere. Mm -hmm. I will warn people. I talk about my horror novels. I talk about my sex novels. (laughs) I talk about my pegging book, which is about sex. There we go. And when does it come out? Oh, that comes out in October. Okay, nice. And I'm a very angry political guy on uh, Twitter. So, you know, if you don't want to hear me um, endlessly ranting the liberal position, <laughs> you just shouldn't follow me because I will block you if you try to try to fuck with me. <laughs> oh, well, I have, I'm taking I'm taking no guff anymore. Yeah, yeah that's kind of where we're at these days. But no. traditionally, we found that our listeners uh, would be in agreement. So. I, f- I figured as much. Yeah, you, but when someone's in, like, if someone's being a dick, it's clear that they're not actually listening to our episodes. They're just looking yeah. at our tweets or our articles and exactly. being like, "Man, and those are they, they're probably walking in with how can you queer code this movie? Oh, 100%. Oh, percent. Trust yeah. me, Joe, you better have something about how like, like just emphasize the the bromance in this, and I can mm-hmm. guarantee you the comments in the bloody article are going to be oh, like, sure. "What the? <laughs> Why are you polluting this sacred text? It's a classic. Oh, yeah. Not right, everything right. is queer, you gang." and you can find all my books uh of all genres at my website coopersbeckett.com awesome yes go seek that out please well if you want to get in touch with us you can reach us on twitter and instagram at horrorqueers or shoot us an email at horrorqueers at gmail.com find us on letterboxd to keep track of all the films we've covered Go to our YouTube channel to check out our interviews with various horror filmmakers, as well as our monthly hangouts where we talk about hot-button issues with some of our journalistic peers. Uh, This month, we're actually doing a uh, top 10 of 2022 so far. So if you want to hear what we all love with a bunch of our previous guests, go check that out on YouTube. Mm -hmm. If you want to chat with other listeners, join our Facebook Horror Queers group. And we would love it if you would go rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Um, We've got a lot of reviews, but we could always use more because it helps. Truly, yeah. And if you want even more content, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. Today is the last day of August, so we have dropped all of our episodes for the month. And those are on Netflix's Resident Evil series, Hulu's new Predator movie Prey, Peacock's new queer slasher film, They Slash Them, A24's murder mystery, Bodies, 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 and an audio commentary on Paul W.S. Anderson's Event Horizon for its 25th anniversary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's good stuff right there. A lot of good stuff, stuff, and we also have a lot of good stuff for September, so stay tuned for that next week. This is true. Yeah, and this month we actually crossed 195 hours on the Patreon, so mm. whenever people are kind of like, ooh, I don't know is it worth it I'm like even if you subscribe at the $10 level you're paying a dollar 19 cents yeah like 19 cents sorry 
<laughs> my math was not good on that. <laughs> but yeah, everyone, $10, 195 hours of content. So go snatch that deal up because it's only going to get bigger. Um, <laughs> Are you saying that snatch is going to get bigger? The snatch, snatch only gets bigger. <laughs> Joe. Mm-hmm. What are we checking out next week? Well, we're not quite done with creatures, but I think we're going to try humanizing them a little bit more. So we're also going to go a foreign trace. We're going to go to Poland. Talk about the lure. Oh, boy. Um, I Okay, look. All you got to do is say mermaid musical horror movie. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's a pretty much an instant sell for me. So if you have not seen this movie, everyone, um, buckle up. <laughs> well, I have not. So this will be a first oh time watch God, for me. Good. Oh, shit. I didn't know you hadn't seen it. Oh, oh mm-hmm. this is going to be exciting. Yes. <laughs> All right, everyone. Well, until then, we can cross out Tremors. Indeed. And cross out Horror Queers. Horror Queers.